Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the Vice President for Legal Affairs here at Cato, and um, I also want to welcome those of us, those of you who are watching us on Cato's live stream. We're here today to uh, mark the publication of a new book by Nadine Strawson entitled Hate, Why uh, We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. It's available outside for purchase, and I urge you to do so because you'll get it at a discount, but also because it is a very, very fine book. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. Uh, in a deeply uh, polarized nation, uh, this book couldn't be more timely. Uh, hardly a day goes by when we don't hear uh, cries from both the public and the private sector to uh, restrict uh, hate speech. Um, the kinds of restrictions that we see in other places around the world. We're fortunate today that uh, we have three experts on the subject who are going to be discussing the many issues surrounding uh, these calls. But before we turn to the arguments, let me introduce our discussants, starting with the author. Nadine Strassen is the John Marshall Harlan II Professor of Law at New York Law School, a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law, She's written uh, on, um, and taught and advocated extensively in the areas of constitutional law and civil liberties, especially in the national media. From 1991 through 2008, uh, Nadine served as president of the American Civil Liberties Union, the first woman to head the nation's largest and oldest civil, civil liberties organization. When she stepped down from the ACLU presidency in 2008, Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, and David Souter participated in her farewell and tribute luncheon. I was also there. I didn't see that mentioned in your bio. Um, the, um, uh, she is the recipient of too many distinguished awards to list here. I'll mention just one. The National Law Journal named her uh, one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America. And that's a pretty... Uh, large cast, so she's certainly uh, uh, deserving of that honor, too. Uh, but for our purposes, I'll add simply that Nadine is an old friend of the Cato Institute, notwithstanding her many apostasies. <laughs> in, in fact, she and I... Back at you. <laughs> uh, in fact, she and I first met at, um, when I invited her to speak at our 1990 conference on the expanding criminal law. And we've had her back many times since then. And the criminal law has continued to expand. Unfortunately, that wasn't too successful, right? Um, after Nadine gives her, us a quick summary of her book, we'll hear brief comments from um, two, uh, our two discussants, Mike Seidman and John Samples, and then open things up for further discussion. Let me introduce uh, Mike and uh, John now. Mike uh, is also an old friend of the Cato Institute, he and I have debated more than once and survived to argue another day. You um, survived. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and not only here in Washington, we, we last debated, if I'm not mistaken, in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, Mike is the uh, Carmack uh, Waterhouse Professor of Constitutional Law uh, at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches a wide range of constitutional and criminal law courses, a graduate also of Harvard Law. Uh, he served as a law clerk for J. Skelly Wright on the D.C. Circuit 
and for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Uh, he was then a staff attorney with the DC Public Defender Service until joining the uh, Georgetown Law Faculty in 1976. He's co-author of a constitutional law casebook, among many other works, including a book forthcoming from Cambridge entitled Seven Problems with Classical Liberalism. Just seven, Mike? <laughs> I, I, I had a space limitation, oh, I Roger. I, 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 it's, a, it's a good thing you did. <laughs> this is a preview of the next debate. <laughs> um, now, my colleague uh, John Samples is vice president here at Cato and the founding director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies, uh, which studies the First Amendment, uh, government, institutional failure, and public opinion. Uh, with a doctorate in political science from Rutgers, John also manages Cato's Adjunct Scholars Program and oversees the Center for Science, a study of science. Prior to joining Cato, John served for eight years as director of Georgetown University Press, and before that, as vice president of the 20th Century Fund, he's the author, among many other works, of The, strategic, uh, the Struggle to Limit Government, a Modern uh, Political History, and the fallacy of campaign finance reform. All right, with that, let me uh, say first off, Nadine, that uh, this is a really fine book. Uh, you've covered the waterfront on a, uh, a number of complex questions uh, that so vex us and so many people. In particular, why and how to preserve free speech in a world that seems to be generating so much vile and hateful speech. In the process, you've drawn some fine distinctions between those few instances when speech properly may be restricted and uh, the far larger realm in which speech restrictions may not be imposed. And you've illustrated the theory of the matter with examples from liberal democracies that have not been so solicitous as we in the United States have been, at least so far. Uh, so why don't you start us off with a brief summary of your argument, and then we'll hear uh, comments uh, even more briefly from uh, Mike and John. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that warm introduction, Roger, and thank all of you for, thank my two distinguished co-panelists and the rest of you for sharing your precious time. Uh, this is a topic that I have been debating and discussing throughout my entire adult life. I thought I had nothing new to say on the subject, and people on the other side, quite frankly, I thought had nothing new to say on the subject, but it became clear to me a couple of years ago that I had not done as good a job as I hoped I could, or, and my allies likewise, because on college campuses, I was seeing too many assumptions on the part of students and even faculty members who wonderfully were becoming resurgent in their activism in support of human rights, which was wonderful to me as a student activist from the 60s and 70s, but so many of them seemed to believe that free speech was their enemy rather than what I understood it to be as the most time-tested and worthy ally. So as an ad advocate and as an educator, I took this as a challenge to try to make the case more persuasively, both in my own mind and more importantly to uh, a larger public. And I must admit, the, the skeptics that I am 
trying really to address do tend to be on the left end of the political spectrum. There seems to be much more support these days for free speech from libertarians and conservatives. Although uh, I think it's so interesting that the US Supreme Court, which is deeply divided, I need not tell you, on so many issues, it has been unanimous or virtually unanimous on this issue all across the ideological spectrum. So uh, first of all, as Roger indicated, as a result of the research and thinking for the book, I actually refined my understanding and appreciation of First Amendment law and uh, discovered that it tends to be mischaracterized in one of two directions equally incorrect. Number one, we constantly hear pronouncements that hate speech is not free speech. Even lawyers and others who know better uh, say that. That is not true. The Supreme Court never has carved out from the First Amendment a category of hate speech defined by its content or message and held that it's categorically unprotected. On the other hand, and here I fault myself, uh, I and others who have supported the current law have too often allowed ourselves to uh, participate in debates that are misleadingly styled something like, hate, should hate speech be protected? Well, that turns out not to be a binary yes or no, because American law does appropriately allow much hate speech to be protected in certain contexts if it, in that context, under all the facts and circumstances, directly causes imminent serious specific harm, such as a genuine threat or targeted harassment or intentional incitement of imminent violence. So I developed much greater respect for the nuances of American law. And I think uh, many of the people who advocate moving more in the direction of Europe and other countries that allow much wider suppression of hate speech will actually cite examples of speech that is already punishable in this country precisely because it is so directly tied to specific harm. Um, so uh, in addition to the argument that, well, if you only look at the category of constitutionally protected hate speech in our country, first of all, that's narrower than many people think it is. Uh, secondly, if you do allow that speech to be punished, either because you dislike its viewpoint or because you think it has a more speculative, attenuated connection to potential harm, that's the direction that so many other countries have gone. And what I confirmed, uh, it had been my hypothesis based on prior analysis, uh, but catching up with the facts that have developed and the evidence that's developed since I, I last entered the fray on this issue, uh, I saw so many instances where even the best intent mentioned hate speech laws, right? They are, uh, they are designed in the hope of furthering goals that I completely share, equality and dignity and diversity and inclusivity and societal harmony, amen and a women, right, uh, for all of those. But the laws have at best been ineffective and at worst counterproductive. And so just you know, to take an example, Germany, 
we all know the special history there as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, particularly poignant history for me. Germany has uh, probably the toughest, strictest anti-hate speech laws in the world, even punishing uh, a broad concept of a Holocaust denial. Uh, and even so, historians have been criminally convicted for debating over fine points of historic uh, 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 background about what led to the Holocaust. Um, and Germany even criminalizes critical statements about particular Israeli government policies as anti-Semitic hate speech. So very, very strict laws. Have we seen a decrease in anti-Semitism in Germany? Hardly. I mean, there's been a lot of publicity about some of the recent violent episodes. Uh, we're not talking only about hate speech. We're talking about violent crimes against Jews or people who are mistakenly to, believed to be Jews, as happened recently, to the point that Angela Merkel appointed the first cabinet-level commissioner for anti-Semitism. Uh, also, the extreme far-right party in Germany, the Alternative for Germany, which has explicitly racist policies, got almost 13% of the vote in the November national elections in Germany. So uh, certainly the laws have not been effective in dealing with the underlying problem. Even more ironically, and I could give examples, but I don't want to use too much time. You can read the book to get a lot of examples. Um, as Roger indicated, perversely, these laws disproportionately are enforced against speech by and on behalf of the very minority group groups who are its intended beneficiaries. And rather than giving you examples, I will uh, just say, think about the reasons for that. It's not an accident, right? Those who uh, say we have too much hate speech and too much hateful conduct complain, and I echo their complaints, that we have systemic structural discrimination that is embedded in our social institutions, certainly in our criminal justice system. Studies have shown that it's embedded in our civil justice system as well. Many experts point to uh, what some call implicit bias. I think the favored term now is unintentional or unconscious bias on the part of us as individuals. I accept that these are serious problems. And therefore, the last thing I want to do is hand over to the officials uh, in this discriminatory system what is inevitably a subjective power to decide which speech meets the inherently vague criteria that you see in these laws, speech that is disparaging, demeaning, uh, insulting, et cetera. Uh, we should not be surprised that the discretion that is used to enforce these laws is done in a way that is not friendly to members of minorities any more than the drug laws uh, or any other laws are enforced in a way that is friendly to minorities. And just one sentence, there's a whole chapter in the book, uh, that one verb in the title is resist. So I am not just saying let's not censor. This is an affirmative call to resist hatred, discrimination, and stereotyping. And I just 
fervently believe that the effective way to do that is through counter speech, robust counter speech, that all of us, especially those of us who are against censorship, have a moral responsibility to engage in. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Nadine. She mentioned the uh, examples in the book. It is replete with examples which will um, gather the mind, uh, especially in the European nations, of what's going on there. Uh, it's really striking. Mike, um, we invited you here because you've been making some noise lately uh, <laughs> that, has, uh, that prompted us to think that you would be a good foil for Nadine's uh, thesis. Uh, but then you just wrote to me the other day that the book was excellent and you weren't quite sure. I hope she hasn't deprived you of any opportunity to uh, establish some light between the two of you. So have at it. <laughs> well, okay. First, Roger, I, I do want to congratulate Cato on setting this up as a uh, informal conversation rather than kind of a stilted presentation. That poses some problems for me because I last said something spontaneous in 1986 <laughs> and I vowed that got me into big trouble and I vowed never to do it again. So I am going to refer to uh, uh, Your written work here. does enough of that. Uh, right. right. Um, and, and I know you did, I know you, how much you like a good show and I know you invited me here to defend snowflakes and political correctness everywhere and every place. Uh, and I value my invitations to Cato, so I don't want to disappoint you, but the unfortunate fact is, as much as I hate to admit it, this is a really good book. Um, so I start from a position, actually, of a lot of sympathy with Nadine's main point. Um, I am a little more open than she is to claims that some kinds of communicative conduct cause real harm, and that at least on some occasions, um, permitting that conduct can lead to less rather than more speech. But that said, I am really skeptical of uh, speech codes and speech regulation, especially, in my, I might say, on college campuses where I think um, everything ought to be on the table and everything ought to be up for debate. Um, beyond that, I think Nadine's uh, book and most, not quite all, but most of her presentation today uh, puts the focus exactly where it ought to be. That is to say, on questions of policy. And so she asks exactly the right sorts of questions. Um, how is a practical matter? Are these statutes and codes going to be written? Um, without suppressing uh, speech that we want to allow? What are the actual consequences of speech codes in places here and abroad where they've been tried? Do they actually accomplish what they were intended to accomplish? Are there better ways of accomplishing the same thing? Those are exactly the right questions to ask. And I think Nadine is right to argue that at least in many times and many places, I would not say in all times and all places, but in many times and many places, asking those questions leads to a healthy skepticism about whether uh, regulation of hate speech is actually making things better. So for the most part, I'm sympathetic to the argument, 
and the way that she makes it. But don't worry, Roger. Um, I do have a few, I do think there are a few places where she goes off track. The problem comes when we stop talking about hate speech as a matter of policy where reasonable people can disagree and where some things work in some places but not necessarily in all places and start talking about it as a fundamental right or, and worse yet, as a constitutional right uh, that ends rather than invites contestation. Um, far too often, critics of hate speech regulations start and end with claims about the free speech clause of the American Constitution. Um, because these measures violate the First Amendment, it said, therefore they're wrong, and that is the end of the story. Nadine is less guilty of that than most people, but I think she's at least a little guilty of it. She was a little guilty of it right here when she uh, conflated what the Supreme Court has said about this with what uh, the, the, the rule ought to be. And so I want to spend the rest of my time explaining why, why I think she's misguided about that. So the first and most important thing to understand um, is that most of the free speech law that the Supreme Court has articulated is actually not in the Constitution. None of the elaborate body of doctrine dealing th with things like uh, content neutrality, tiers of review, low-level speech, clear and present danger, the things that fill up Supreme Court opinions, none of that is actually in the United States Constitution. These are inventions of the Supreme Court, some of them quite recent inventions. So for example, um, with no support in the text or the original understanding of the text, the Supreme Court has held that certain forms of speech uh, the most recently added to the list is child pornography, simply don't enjoy First Amendment protection. Um, since the, the Supreme Court has made up those categories, if it wanted to, it could easily make up another category, hate speech. Mike, maybe we should remind people exactly what is in the First Amendment because it's so so terse. I'm holding up my Cato copy of the First Amendment uh, uh, and the rest of the Constitution. And it's not a special Cato edition. It's the words are in the Constitution <laughs> itself. Uh, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. That's so everything all, else that's is all Supreme says, Court. All of the rest the Supreme Court's made up. So just to take another example, uh, according to the Supreme Court, and I agree with this, um, if a racist were to spit upon uh, the first African-American admitted to a previously segregated uh, fraternity or dorm, um, the First Amendment doesn't provide the racist with protection, even though spitting on somebody is communicating something. something. So the court said that. It could easily say that the same result should apply when racists hold up signs that say um, in front of a student's dorm room. Um, so that's the first problem. Suppose, though, that all this was not a modern invention. And suppose, um, counterfactually, that the framers of the Constitution thought that hate, the hate speech problem, they thought of the problem, uh, and they thought that um, the words of the First Amendment dealt with it, it would still 
be a mistake, I think, to let these people and what they thought several hundred years ago um, settle the debate that we ought to be having now. These are people who had no idea about our present situation. They lived in a radically different country with different social circumstances where people held very different moral and political views. The core ideas they held about free speech just really don't apply today. Um, the main assumption they had that progressives reject elsewhere, but for some reason they tend to accept in the speech context, is that freedom is necessarily associated with the absence of government. Now, I know the people in this room tend to think that's true, um, and so they are more inclined to accept the view that the framers had, but I don't think Nadine generally thinks that's true, and I don't think it's true. Uh, supposedly, speech is free when government makes no laws. What that approach ignores is that the absence of government opens the door for private coercion. And private coercion can limit people's freedom. So when there were no civil rights laws, African Americans traveling in the South just were not free to go to the bathroom. Uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, something that the government did, made people more free rather than less free. And so too, sometimes speech is free when government makes no laws, but sometimes government laws are necessary to make speech free. So for example, when Yale University, a private institution, expels students for violating its speech code, um, or when Facebook bars users because it insists on political correctness, or when campus protesters, private campus protesters, shut down an unpopular speech speaker, that doesn't make speech free. Uh, nor does it follow as night follows day that speech is free um, when systematic harassment on the job, on campus, on the street, creates an environment where minority views can't be expressed. Strikingly, the main problem with free speech today is actually not the product of government regulation. Uh, a big part of the problem is produced by too much speech rather than too little. The technological changes that have made speech so pervasive have led to uh, speech clutter, and that's led to speech siloing, where people are only exposed to the speech they agree with. And that, in turn, has given tremendous power to speech aggregators, private act actors who establish the walls of the silo and shield people from ideas that might upset them or might, God forbid, actually make them think. Um, and the solution to that, I think, is more government regulation of those aggregators and not less. Now, I may be wrong about all this. I know that many people in this room think I'm wrong. But my basic point is that that's a free and open debate that we ought to be having, and it's a debate about policy. A debate like that is in actually the best traditions of free speech. It's the kind of debate that Nadine's book opens up. It's a deep irony that in order to have that debate, we have to first resist the authoritarian impulse to shut it down by a supposed constitutional command that is said to resolve the issue for all time and not to allow us to talk about it in a free and open way. Thank you.
Thank you. Well, Michael, thank you for that creative conception of classical liberalism. <laughs> Uh, John, Sarcasm perhaps, will get you nowhere, <laughs> Roger, but it is permissible. John, perhaps you have a different vision to share with us. Um, I want to start in a different way and then probably get back to the same issues um, at the end. So I thought I would do my ask where I have comparative advantage here, and I think that's Madisonian approach. I want to talk about politics and uh, not parchments. I'm not a lawyer. The Constitution itself. I want to talk about the politics of this a little bit and then get back to the moral issues. But first, a word about the book. What they said about the book is actually true. We're not just saying it to be nice. It's a really good book. It's really worth your time. What I would point out is one of the things the book does is something that I think is actually very needed right at this moment, which is we don't want the First Amendment, First Amendment, despite the argument here, First Amendment uh, support to go the same way everything seems to be going in our politics, which is divided along partisan or ideological uh, grounds. So, so really what, and since the left, as it were, has more of the doubts now, the evidence for free speech and why it helps uh, the left and people the left care about is a very important argument to make here. And that's what the book does. It does with chapter and verse about how uh, minorities and other uh, oppressed groups and so on how they benefit from free speech. And I think that's a strong point that, uh, that needs uh, emphasis about the, what is generally a very good book. So I want to talk about uh, the concrete realities of hate speech. And I'm, I have three points to make here. The first one is, uh, given the nature of where we are politically in the country right now, a country that is a lot of division about a lot of things, particularly among elites, but more generally, that really the vagueness problem of hate speech that's in this book and is a major reason for worrying about hate speech regulation is actually rooted more deeply in the politics of the society. That is, we actually can't agree about what hate speech would be, and you would end up with all sorts of uh, sort of false positives, uh, errors that would affect both sides, really. So there's no agreement on meaning, but that's rooted in a larger issue often about the society itself, the divisions within it. The second uh, point I would make is that these divisions are an equal division, right? Uh, now, pretty much that's true of elites, but it's also, as you can see from voting turnout, it's true of the society in general, right? It's, there's two sides to it. And the important crucial part of this is one side or the other could come back into power, right? So that means that freedom of speech and particularly concerns about hate speech bans are going to be not so much rooted, although they should be rooted in constitutional theory or moral theory, they're going to be rooted really in mutual fear. And this is a good thing, actually, right? So this is kind of like the founders. The founders sort of said, well, maybe the passions have a role, too, and you want to root your institutions in that. By this, I mean both sides have to recognize that while I might think certain kinds of speech, extreme speech, hate speech, should be banned, I can't count on being in power for 30 or 40 years, right? The other side may come back into power, and when they do, they're going to have a different conception, and my speech is going to be banned. So you have a kind of 
It's kind of like, uh, at least until recently, chemical weapons. Why don't you use chemical weapons? Well, there's laws about it, but you don't use it because both sides could use it and you could be harmed by it. Um, now, so this, uh, so mutual fear, equal division is very important, and that also implies that we have less concern about hate speech in most of our politics, because most of our, our politics is dominated by equal division and a kind of lack of shared meanings. But that also argument also implies that if you are in a venue or an institution where one side or the other dominates, either partisanship, ideology, or whatever, then uh, you will have the danger that hate speech or other kinds of bans could be enforced because one side, the dominant side, doesn't have to believe that in the future my speech could be banned. So in states, for example, that have no real prospect of becoming bipartisan or exchanging of power, California comes to mind, you would have that. In institutions that are homogenous and have one dominant group, you would have that same issue. Often this won't matter, right? In public institutions, like the state of California, the state of Texas or whatever, although I guess Texas, maybe Utah is a better example, um, that doesn't matter because the First Amendment and the Supreme Court is not going to permit those states or public forums, public universities, from enforcing uh, the dominant view or the, uh, that a hom homogenous group has. But that doesn't apply, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private institutions. So if private institutions are, have a homogenous point of view or a dominant point of view, they are beyond the First Amendment. And so you might actually, I would say, assuming the doctrine is not going to change, which I do, the Supreme Court doctrine is not going to change, I would assume that the real issues about hate speech and banning of it are going to come in private institutions. And that leads us back to where Mike was. Um, we've had a lot of discussion about Facebook and other. You really are going toward a time where the public forums are going to be privately owned. Now, for libertarians, I think this is not a big issue. If it's privately owned, people own it, and the agents or the owners have a right to do what they want to with it, right? So I've just come from a, uh, a conference this morning on content moderation, which is about this very issue. And uh, content moderation in the context of the internet is what do we take down? What kinds of speech cannot appear on our platform? And we had several presentations this morning about how we do Twitter and so on, how we do content moderation. The thing that struck me about it was they come back to the words that kept uh, coming back were trust and safety in, con in the context of hate speech, right? It's not so much that they don't like hate speech. It's that they think the people that they need to have on that platform will not like being there if hate speech, or however that's defined, is there. In other words, for those who are classical liberals, um, the issue is going to be that privately owned forums are going to be taking down speech because they are trying to serve their role of attracting customers and being responsive to consumer preferences. Last week, we saw for about uh, an hour and a half, Facebook uh, sent out, if you pulled up a post, 
you got a little poll right under it that said, do you consider this post you're reading about the news or whatever, do you consider it hate speech? Can you see that, how exactly that is a capitalist act? They're trying to figure out what the customers that they want on their platform considers hate speech. So that will be, I think, a large part of, maybe part of the uh, possibilities of the future, that it'll be private in nature. But I, my concern would be this. Um, we also see that in the last six months or so, many members of Congress are trying to bully, say, Facebook or Google into uh, doing things they want done, the member wants done. They're afraid that the speech that is being taken down for good business reasons, let's say, is actually going to be something that uh, is going to affect conservatives or so on. And then you also get some talk about public utilities turning these uh, giant firms into public utilities. I think the danger of the future most likely is not that Supreme Court doctrine will change, though that could happen, but that you will end up with private forums which are actually publicly run in important ways. And the problem will be that they are private forums and beyond the First Amendment, but the people in them are making decisions at the behest of public actors who will have essentially have found a loophole in the First Amendment. Thank you, John. Uh, Nadine, uh, John has just raised a number of questions. I want to just zero in on what he, the points that he concluded with. Um, we are already seeing, with respect to these privately owned, but to a large extent public utility looking like institutions, uh, even those that can be uh, characterized as quasi-monopolies. Mm -hmm. And there, the attempt to police hate speech is running to all the same problems that, are, that you run into with public efforts to do so. And we're hearing the screaming uh, from both sides, mm -hmm. left and right, yeah. about that. Uh, how do you thread that yeah. needle? And, and I, I want to thank both of these excellent commentators. And I think both of you were raising a point uh, that generically I agree with, that my argument has to go beyond the First Amendment for uh, not only the reasons that Mike raised, that the, the first, I'm, I'm not making a textualist or originalist argument at all. Although, interestingly enough, I do note, I've participated in debates where I think the originalist uh, defense of the Supreme Court's current concept of punishable and protectable hate speech was very strongly defended as an originalist matter by Steve Solomon at NYU. I'm agnostic on the pros and cons, but it's important to know other people make that argument. Um, and then I think both Mike and John um, agree that there are overarching practical problems about freedom of speech in a real world where so much power to either uh, allow speech to thrive or to suppress speech, so much power resides in private sector actors, which not everybody knows. I know a lot of you do, so bear with me. The First Amendment does not constrain 
private sector actors, whether they be private universities or the private uh, social media or other online intermediaries. And, uh, and this, I agree with the Supreme Court, which unanimously in a decision in June involving social media described it as being, for all practical purposes, the equivalent of the public forum now. And it gave statistics about this is where most people go to not only engage in most of their communications with friends and colleagues, but to get most of their information about public affairs. So serving not only the individual liberty function of freedom of speech, but also the democracy function. We, the people, are the governors, and how can we do it if we don't have access to and exchange information? So I agree that we need to find other tools to defend a robust counterpart of the public square. And I think we have to do that uh, in two possible ways. Number one would be advocating that our government adopt certain regulations, because I am not, by Rogers, I think by either of your definitions, maybe you'll agree I'm not a classical liberal, right? Because I do not, on, and OK, I'm not going to, I won't tell you what you are. I t will tell you what I am. You're the, you're the best. I do not not oppose government regulation per se. Uh, I and the ACLU enthusiastically supported the Civil Rights Act, and Roger and I have had uh, debates about this, which I'm happy to return to. Uh, so I would not automatically rule out government regulations such as antitrust regulations that could constrain the monopoly power of, of these companies in a way that would not allow them to uh, suppress free speech. I right now am not going to propose a particular solution. Uh, I will agree on diagnosing the problem. And as, as Roger says, uh, the way I cite the, what has gone on with attempts by the social media companies to enforce their hate speech community standards is to illustrate the inevitable problems with trying to define and enforce hate speech laws, no matter who does it, right? Uh, Facebook actually has come up with hundreds of criteria to try to distinguish punishable from protected hate speech. They recently actually released all of these criteria. And rather than making the problem uh, more manageable, it makes it more impenetrable. Uh, some of the examples, as Roger says, will, I hope, give you shudders. I mean, uh, so, so they have different standards for each group that about whom what you say could be considered to be hate speech. And by the way, that group of, of, of targets, um, protected targets, changes and expands and shrinks. So right away, that's one uh, debatable point. But on the recently added category of migrants, I think in this country, we, we would tend to say immigrants, uh, Facebook has told its armies of enforcers around the world um, that you may say, you may, you may use words that are degrading, but you may not use words that are dehumanizing. Got that? Um, here's another example. Uh, you may use the adjective filthy That's about right. migrants, but you may not use the noun 
filth. Now, I, 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 my book, again, is replete with examples, and I actually have a whole chapter because I think it's easier for us to be, you know, we could make fun of what's been tried. It more challenging is to, you know, I know so many people who say, oh, I know I could come up with a criteria that really would work. And so uh, the book has a chapter that basically welcomes you to do that, and it goes through all of the categories of decisions you would have to make. Which groups would be protected? What would be the kind of harm that would have to be shown? What would have to be the connection between the speech and the harm? And I, and, and I, in an earlier edition of my book, which was cut only for matters of length, I made a written offer, which I will now make orally. If you think that you can come up with a code that is not unduly vague, does not vest unfettered discretion in enforcing authorities, that's not going to lead to problems of capricious and arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement, please send it to me. You can easily find my email address. And I also promised that I would send it to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, who many, many years ago said something which I quote in in the book. Uh, nobody can craft a speech code that does not suppress speech that they do not want to be punished. It has been tried and tried and tried. Well, try again, uh, if you will. From a civil rights uh, perspective, I have to point out that since 2014, a large coalition of civil rights and civil liberties organizations, including the ACLU, almost 80 organizations, have regularly complained to Facebook that it is enforcing its hate speech standards in a way that is contrary to civil rights, contrary to human rights, so that disproportionately suppressed is any speech that is critical of the government including police abuse. So Black Lives Matter activists have been uh, routinely suppressed. Pipeline protesters have been routinely suppressed. And I was surprised to see that in some segments of the civil rights movement, the term that's used for that entity is race book. So, so um, if we were before another audience, I would uh, take Nadine on, on why she thinks that um, uniquely in the First Amendment context, property rights ought to be treated as fixed, whereas they're not fixed anyplace else. Um, you, you can do but, it in, but, before this audience. I'd, right? I'd, I'd, I'd rather take John on okay. before this audience, because I think. Preview of coming attractions. This, this, audience, <laughs> this audience needs more education on that score. Um, so. Um, it, it just is, um, I, I just have to say, bizarre to me that anybody should think that um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, even disciplined by market forces, is going to make the decisions that are in the best interests of the United States about what speech we should hear and what speech we shouldn't hear. Uh, so look, um, recently, um, Mark, many people in this room probably know about this. Marquette University, that's a private university, subject to market forces. Uh, it decided, or, or a um, professor there decided, that um, uh, it, it was hate speech to, uh, to say, uh, to criticize gay marriage, to criticize the right to gay marriage. And a, a, a professor there was disciplined for expressing sympathy for a student 
who didn't think that there was a right to gay marriage. And it's a Catholic university. And it's a Catholic university. You, you, you would think there of all places this wouldn't happen, but it did. Um, now, um, the, the, students at, the students and faculty at Marquette, they don't have freedom of speech. Yes, I suppose in theory they could go to another university, but in fact they're there, they're stuck there. Many, many universities do the same sort of thing. Um, um, and that's not free speech. And the government had nothing to do with that. But their speech was not free. It was censored. Um, and what is a, a counterforce to Marquette that might do something about this? Well, it's the government, right? The government could um, pass a civil rights law that said that universities can't kick people out because they're expressing views about things like like, um, like gay marriage. And I, I, I'm interested in, in hearing from John why he thinks if the government passed a law like that, that would make us less free rather than more free. May I add a, a factual matter here, which Roger may remember. Um, many years ago, it must have been, I would guess, in the early 1990s, there was a proposed federal statute uh, that would have done exactly what Mike proposed. It was sponsored by Congressman Henry Hyde, Republican, ardent Catholic from Illinois, uh, and I am quite, and, and I testified in favor of it. I appeared in a news conference uh, with him at which it was announced. I was then the president of the ACLU. I am sure that the motivation for proposing that legislation was the perception then, which continues now, that it is disproportionately conservative. Hyde was an arch conservative. Uh, conservative messages that are being suppressed on college campuses. The specific example at the time, there were a lot of students who uh, were uh, censored, or at least they felt chilled when they criticized a firm affirmative action, and I'm a strong supporter of affirmative action, subject for yet another debate. Uh, but for the ACLU, what was appealing about this legislation was that it was, and I think Cato would probably not support it, but uh, the, it, the proposed law was that uh, any institution that receives a certain amount of federal funding, any private educational institution, will be bound by the same free speech standards as apply on public sector campuses. And it got some support, but it uh, did not pass. Yeah. Uh, John, uh, Mike just threw you a softball. Yeah. You want to take a swing at it? <laughs> Difficult for me, but yeah. not for you, Dr. Kiron. The, um, I, I did want to make one remark, though, as uh, Nadine was uh, speaking. During his recent visit to Washington, Mark Zuckerberg said that maybe uh, what Facebook needs is a Supreme Court for making these kinds of decisions, which I think uh, the term Chief Justice Strawson sounds pretty good. <laughs> Maybe we'll suggest that to him. Um, the whole question, uh, yeah, let me begin with an example uh, and see how it works. If we're not going to make a distinction between private and public in this area, and we're going to sort of, I think the issue ultimately is that the government is a unique threat, a uniquely powerful threat to freedom of speech because of the ability to coerce, and also that the belief that on the whole, though you can cite examples that, uh, that as you have, 
on the whole, the government is almost always going to get it wrong. And that's because the government, it's going to be primarily, in my experience, the reason government intervenes is not to advance freedom of speech, but to prevent criticism of public officials. That's what we're trying to avoid here. And that's what you can expect from the dynamics of public choice that drive speech regulation. There's other arguments about this, I'm sure. Uh, in thinking about this, and this is, a, there's, we should be clear, this is actually the Facebook example, is a conflict of values, right? We, private kinds of responses to market signals and doing things and limiting speech for that is one thing, something we libertarians support. You also support freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. So you have to decide. Well, one of the things it seems to me is that what if you don't have private forums, if there's no concept of a private forum? For example, imagine that Roger decided in this instance to, in terms of who he's choosing for this panel, to exclude Richard Spencer. All right? Richard Spencer is a man that has uh, had quite a few issues in, uh, on public universities. That's why I cho chose him. Um, would he, Roger be... Uh, preventing freedom of speech? He would be reducing a certain kind of speech, would he not? But would the government, could the government, if the government came in and said, no, Roger, you've got Nadine and you've got Mike, you should have Richard Spencer too, get rid of samples, right? <laughs> is that something that uh, we want? I think there's an intuition here, which is that private forums are something that people should be able to assemble together freely and to, to decide what they want to do. And Roger should be able to make those choices about the purposes of the Cato Institute, purposes of a good forum, of a good discussion of Nadine's book. And the government has no role to play in that. But now, would you address, or no, I'll address, the, uh, I told the, the question that Nadine raised, that the Hyde bill, which you supported, mm -hmm. would have said, if you get government funds, these are the restrictions we're going to impose upon you. And there were the usual exceptions for religious institutions. Well, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. Uh, admittedly. But that raises the unconstitutional conditions mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. Namely that um, you cannot, as a condition of receiving funds that are generally available, require someone to give up one of his constitutional rights. This came up, for example, as you may recall, in the Piss Christ uh, art mm -hmm. exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. Mm -hmm. And Giuliani, much in the news of late, went after the um, museum and lost, rightly so. <clears throat> because if you're going to have a public institution, you cannot impose unconstitutional conditions upon the exercise. And it seems to me that that's why the Hyde Amendment, mm -hmm. that, for that Hyde Amendment, yeah. failed, uh, and rightly so. I don't think it was for constitutional law reasons, well, Roger. I, I but, give the Congress uh, greater yeah, credit yeah. than they deserve. Uh, but, I you know, it's, the, 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 these are tough <clears throat> questions because, you know, to echo what John says, there are free speech concerns on both sides as well as, um, you know, more general freedom concerns on both sides. And this is always a conflict in academic freedom generally. To what extent are you talking about the freedom of the institution to choose its message, and to what extent are you talking about 
about the freedom of the individuals within that institution. And as Mike alluded to, I know that the libertarian answer is, well, then they could choose another institution to go to. So, yeah. Uh, so let, oh, okay. let me uh, raise an issue for Mike, which will serve as a segue to a question for um, Nadine. Uh, Mike, you've got an article uh, forthcoming from the Columbia Law Review entitled, Can Free Speech Be Progressive? Uh, and the uh, SSRN abstract alone raises more than a few eyebrows. Um, you write that, and I quote, free speech cannot be progressive, at least it can't be progressive if we are talking about free speech in the American context with all the historical, sociological, and philosophical baggage that comes with the modern American free speech right. And you go on to say that, and I quote again, the notion that our free speech tradition might be weaponized to advance progressive ends is fanciful. The American free speech tradition is too deeply rooted in ideas about fixed property rights and with an equation of freedom with government inaction to be progressive, adding that, and I quote, at its core, free speech law entrenches a social view at war with key progressive objectives. Um, that's pretty strong. Well, I, I would think you would agree with that, Roger. Uh, no. <laughs> I, I thought that, I mean... Well, I agree with the idea that it does. In, in other words, free speech is just part of the larger picture of freedom. Well, exactly. I mean, people at Cato think that property rights and speech rights are, are indissolvable and that Aren't free they? speech fits with an anti-progressive agenda, and I'm agreeing with you. Ah, okay. So I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> so you have, a, you have a, um, now, now a different we, agenda. We, in the end, we come out, yeah. we, 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 we solve the problem in different ways, but I... I would think, I, I, I was expecting I would get some lectureship at Cato after I wrote this. <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's, it's coming, Mike. All right. Um, <laughs> it's under consideration. Yeah. By, by the way, um, in that article, uh, you favorably quote University of Chicago law professor Laura Weinrib, whose recent LA Times op-ed itself raised eyebrows. Its title was, here we go for Nadine, the, ACLU, uh, the ACLU's free speech stance should be about social justice, not timeless principles. Uh, I'm going to ask Nadine, is she one of yours? But I'm going to also add that in um, last fall, J.D. Tuchil reported a couple of months ago in Reason Magazine, and I quote, about 200 of the ACLU's staff members signed a letter objecting to the group's rigid stance on the First Amendment. The letter was characterized by former ACLU board member Michael Myers as, quote, a repudiation of free speech principles. Nadine, what's going on in the ACLU? Free speech? What oh. can I say? You know, how can an organization that defends dissent um, uh, be embarrassed about dissent and debate within the organization? I think that even occurs at the but, Cato Institute. But, yeah, but what? Uh, and, and, you know, it's, I think it's very interesting that uh, periodically there are, well, constantly there's debate. I mean, when I was uh, president of the ACLU, that's the main thing I, I had to do was preside over debates of the National Board of Directors, which rarely did anything without um, strong dissents or concurring opinions, if you will. Uh, and one of the times that we did pass a policy unanimously with all 80-plus 
board members agreeing was when we reaffirmed in about, it was in the early 1990s, our traditional position on the issue of hate speech. Now, uh, in the Skokie case in the late 1970s, when the ACLU came to the defense of the free speech rights of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town with a large number of Holocaust survivors, as well as other Jewish people, uh, that was, it was a slam dunk winner in the courts of law. We won all the way up to the US Supreme Court. But it was extremely controversial in the court of public opinion opinion, including ACLU members. We famously lost 15% of our members over that case. There has not been anything uh, close to that degree of, of departure this time. And I think, you know, that's fine. We then gained other members who said, well, you are true to your announced principles of neutrally defending freedom, even for the idea that you hate, because it is antithetical to your own civil libertarian principles. But is there a drift in a one direction now that wasn't there 30, 40 years ago? I don't think so, because as I look over the history of the ACLU, it has always been committed to civil rights and what other people would call social justice issues. So periodically there have been individuals within the organization uh, who have objected to our defense either of extreme left-wing speech, may I say, I think the most publicly embarrassing incident that the ACLU institutionally has apologized for is purging Communist Party members and leaders from its ranks because of the the rationale, which is not irrational, that if you're supporting a totalitarian form of government, how can you be a good civil libertarian? But uh, And there have been periodic eruptions of people who say, but how can you defend free speech for, uh, for fascists? So uh, I think I, I would be embarrassed if we did not continue to have those debates. And I have uh, full confidence in the leadership of the organization remaining uh, steadfast. Uh, some of you may have seen the wonderful essay that was written in the New York Review by the ACLU legal director, who is also Mike's colleague, uh, David Cole, a professor at Georgetown Law School. Uh, but I think, you know, the, what I think is seriously, more seriously being debated by the staff members, I don't think they're asking us, and that's a small minority of our staff members, but still significant voice. I don't think they're saying we should change our position. They're saying it should not be a priority for the allocation of ACLU resources. And to that, I have uh, two answers. Number one is actually less important than number two. But the first is factually, as David explained in that essay in the New York Review, these cases uh, take a small, very small percentage of our, of our resources. They're cases that are not expensive to litigate because you can, uh, for those lawyers who are there, you can make a motion for summary judgment. You don't need factual discovery and, and so forth. It's a tried and true legal principle, so these are, are quite easy cases in, in the courts of law. Uh, more importantly, as a matter of strategy, right? This is a strategic decision because we're uh, a, a private organization. We can decide to allocate our resources as we choose. Uh, we're not bound by the First Amendment ourselves. So for me, it's 
Uh, how do you most effectively advance your overall agenda, which for the ACLU is defending all fundamental rights for all people? And I think it would disastrously undermine our ability to advocate for any rights, including racial justice and LGBT rights and reproductive freedom, which was, were the causes that were mentioned by the, um, the dissenting staff members. We would crucially undermine our credibility as advocates on any and all issues if we tainted our institutional capital, which is our most valuable, invaluable, priceless asset, uh, that we are maintaining neutrality in defense of all freedom for all people. Okay, we're going to turn in just a minute to the audience questions, if we could ask the, the speakers to come forward. Let me just con conclude this part of it with a request, Nadine, that you say a little bit about the situation in the European context, especially as the issue of blasphemy comes up, which all European countries seem to um, agree is, should be uh, protected or should not be prohibited. And yet, so much of their law comes right up close to... To blasphemy. Yeah, um, and, and, and it's interesting. Denmark only this year or last year finally abolished its anti-blasphemy laws. So uh, there, and, and and the laws were actually still being enforced. So um, in, in the European countries, this was one of the things that really surprised me was the extent to which uh, human rights activists in other countries—Germany, France, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia—all over the world, uh, it's the human rights advocates, not because of the First Amendment by definition. They don't have that, and their own counterparts are, uh, are, are not anywhere close to the more absolutist, viewpoint-neutral uh, position that we have, but precisely because of policy concerns, including disliking how these laws were being enforced, uh, you just have this growing chorus of critics saying, we ought to move more in the American direction because what is being suppressed is, as, as you predict, Mike, uh, any expression that is critical of government policies, uh, any expression that runs against the dominant elite accepted viewpoint, even though it might actually have populist support. So certainly any criticism of Islam is very much endangered. And conversely, uh, much Christian expression, even in religious services, has been, and even reading from uh, the Bible, has been treated as punishable hate speech. So, I, you know, you, on the one hand, you have, you know, blasphemy laws, but on the other hand, in effect, on the other hand, you have government suppressing religious liberty. It's and like you the worst even have of both politicians worlds. sanctioned. Yes. for remarks they make while campaigning. Uh, yes, so in this country, I have to say, those who have advocated suppressing hate speech, including your former colleagues, Mari Matsuda and Chuck Lawrence, uh, they have all said we should zero in on face-to-face -face targeted insults aimed at individuals or small groups of individuals, and they have eschewed any support for uh, suppressing as hate speech any ideas, even though they might hate the ideas. Europe does not draw that distinction, or Canada or these other countries. And literally, 
elected officials as well as political candidates have been treated as criminals for policy statements they make about these incredibly important topics of immigration and racial justice and misogyny and so forth. All right, let's turn to the audience. Please uh, raise your hand, wait for the microphone to come to you and identify yourself in any affiliation you may have. And please ask a question. Uh, and I'm going to send them up both aisles. So as I'm getting a question here in one aisle, let me know someone in the next aisle so we can get as many questions in as possible. Um, yes, right here. Um, and then my name, my name is Roger Trigg. I'm from the University of Oxford. I'm taking up the issue of uh, Europe. It seems to me that there's quite a distinction between the idea in some European countries that freedom is the gift of a beneficent government and the idea that I'm personally more familiar with from the English common law, that freedom is the absolute right of every individual and the government has to have reasons to interfere with it. And I think in England particularly, there's been a bit of a collision between these views recently, and it's probably one of the reasons for Brexit, uh, that, that there's a, an imposition of European ideas of the government knowing best against in very ingrained ideas of the freedom of the individual. I wonder if you could comment on that. I suppose one of the reasons we fought a revolution, right? Um, so I love the words of the uh, Declaration of, of Independence. And uh, I, one of the things I really like about the Cato edition is that includes not only the Declaration, but also Roger's wonderful essay explaining the, the relationship between the Declaration, which I think you called our nation's birth certificate. Yeah, as it I is. recall, I think that's, that, that's really wonderful. And of course, you know, these famous words that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And, and, and actually, so we don't need the government to create the rights, we need the government to protect the rights. And, the opening words of the Constitution convey that same idea. Uh, we, the people, uh, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution, not to grant these liberties, but because they are pre-existing, and the government, it, we enlist to protect them. Could I respond to that? Sure. Um, so it's all well and good to say that uh, rights are pre-political. I, I agree with you that they are. Uh, but the problem is this. Um, it is inevitably the case that when one person is exercising their freedom, uh, they will limit the freedom of other people. So um, when uh, Marquette, uh, let us say, expels a student for, for uh, uh, expressing an unpopular point of view. It is exercising its freedom, uh, but it's, it's limiting the freedom of the student who's expelled. And once you see that there is uh, that conflict over and over again, then the question is who's gonna settle the conflict? Um, it's not gonna be either of the parties who is, are contesting whether their freedom was violated, and it ends up being the government. Um, in, in this case, the government has allocated an entitlement to Marquette University to expel people. It could have, had it wanted to, allocated the entitlement to the student not to be expelled. 
That's a government decision, and, and I think that's just um, unavoidable. But Mike, the problem with that analysis is that it doesn't start with a baseline. No, it does I mean, start with a baseline. I know. The baseline it, is people are free. Well, well, yeah, but you said that we've got conflicting freedoms here. Right. The, um, you know, that's like saying that my um, freedom to uh, swing my hand is limited by your nose. And, uh, you know... I thought that was something you agreed with. <laughs> right? That yes, we do. So we have a baseline. And the baseline here in the private university or private context, um, short of being a monopoly situation, and even that raises problems, so, is, that, but, but, is, that you, but, is that you have a starting point, namely whatever the agreement is with respect to the parties themselves. And in a university context, this is what FIRE deals with all the time mm -hmm. with respect to private mm -hmm. uh, uh, colleges and universities, namely that um, they can be held to account, the university can, by its catalog, which says we are a free speech. Now, if it didn't say that, if it said we're a Catholic organization mm -hmm. and therefore we don't allow X, Y, or Z, then that's the rules going so, in. So There's your base. But... but. <laughs> Roger, you've um, specified a baseline, but you haven't defended it. The, 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 I would like to defend the audience's free speech yeah. rights right. and I'm ask sorry. for some more questions. That's a subject for another day, Mike. Uh, right over here. Nadine, hi, it's Phil Hart. Oh, I know. Great, to, Great see to see you. Great to see you. Um, I think we can agree pretty easily that defining hate speech is, is essentially impossible, um, and I'm sure that... Uh, reading your book, which I shall do, uh, will illustrate that very clearly. But I'd like to know what you personally uh, consider the line or the lines on acceptable uh, speech uh, or expression. That is, what are the things, irrespective of what the Supreme Court has to say on this, um, that you feel should be actionable or suppressible uh, and I, wrong. And, and, and I actually happened, to, you know, the reason I endorse the, where the Supreme Court has come out with one exception uh, is not because the Supreme Court has said it, but I actually think that they're correct. Uh, so, you know, essentially I found that the Supreme Court has, with one exception, endorsed as what it's called the bedrock principle of freedom of speech, viewpoint neutrality. No matter how odious the viewpoint or idea is or how emotionally upsetting or how potentially dangerous in some vague sense, I think that can never be a justification for censoring it. It may be that we are called upon to resist that speech in other ways and with certain hateful messages, I urge that we do that. With fake news, I urge that we do that. Uh, so it's not to say there isn't problematic speech, but I would hold the government's coercive, punitive power uh, to speech that does directly cause specific imminent serious harm 
harm. And the one exception in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, and you'll know what this is, Phil, is the obscenity exception, uh, which the court has acknowledged is obscenity, which is a legal term of art, unlike hate speech. It is a label the Supreme Court has given to certain sexually oriented speech that satisfies a certain definition. And the court has acknowledged that there's no, it's not being punished because of any specific harm, but just because it undermines the moral tone of the community. In other words, we disapprove it. It goes against uh, prevailing values. <clears throat> the Supreme Court has not revisited that exception for many years. So putting that aside, I, I think the Supreme Court doctrine is exactly right. Uh, the other point I would make, because I think you may also be asking, what would I choose not to say? I think all of us uh, have a right to say many things that comes with a professional responsibility and a moral personal responsibility to exercise some self-restraint and, and, and not say certain things. Uh, because, for example, in a classroom, I think it's really important to conduct myself in a professional way, to demand that my students express themselves in a professional way. In writing the book, I wanted to be persuasive, so I engaged in certain self-restraint and self-censorship because I thought it would be a way of making the message more effective. And I was very candid about that in the book. I decided, based on bad personal experience to the when I had not made this decision, uh, that I would censor uh, the N-word, even when it was fully used by persons that I was quoting. I substituted in the N-word, and I explained to my reading audience why I did that, because I've had experience where even when you're quoting somebody else, uh, who says it, including Barack Obama, that you can get so much blowback and some people seem to be so upset even by hearing it uh, that it distracts from, from my message. So I think we always have to be conscious of potential. I, I would absolutely oppose uh, censor self-restraint that undermines the substantive message. But sometimes self-restraint, I believe in that instance, actually furthers the substantive message. You might want to speak to someone over at the White yeah, House about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, up there, please. Uh, my name is Joe Freeman. I, too, am a child of the 60s. And I spent 65, 66 working for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in the South. And I observed that many restaurants, which had, before the Civil Rights Act, been white only, put signs up which said, all money spent in this restaurant by Negroes will be donated to the Ku Klux Klan. Does the government have any role in keeping speech from thwarting civil rights? I, I think that the restaurant owners are completely free to do that, and the rest of us are completely free to choose to uh, not patronize that restaurant, to write editorials denouncing it, to even organize boycotts against it. And interestingly enough, a similar uh, tactic has been used to the opposite end in Germany. I recounted in my book where um, there is a group of uh, 
neo-Nazis, because of the hate speech laws, they don't manifest their uh, beliefs more directly. But every year they make a, a pilgrimage to the, by, uh, to the burying site, burial site of some dead Nazi leader. And so they have this parade through the town to where he's buried. And a group of um, human rights activists decided to make a mockery of them and to raise money for anti-hate causes uh, by in turning it into an involuntary walkathon. So they raised money from uh, local businesses and townspeople and said, for every step that these Nazis march, uh, you, we are donating like 10 euros to these anti-fascist organizations. So again, I'd say counter speech is, is the best response. They're not allowed to do that. They may not, okay, if you're saying somebody is not gonna come in because they see that sign as, as being threatening, that's something else. But I think that the uh, white restaurant, did you disagree with me on that? As a, I, I think yeah. I do, actually. But and, So just a question for you. I, I take it you would not uh, apply the same standards to comments in the workplace that kept women out. Yeah, oh, so, yeah, and this is a fair question, and thank you, I didn't look at it from that perspective. I do, as the book explains, support the concept of uh, hostile environment harassment. Uh, but I think the Supreme Court, I, here I too agree with the Supreme Court's appropriately strict definition, uh, especially when it comes to words that it has to be so severe and pervasive uh, that it objectively, not from a you know subjective perspective, undermines equal opportunity in the workplace uh, or in the educational environment. And you have a fair point. So maybe we can agree on the standard and then reasonable people maybe can disagree on how it applies. Uh, it is a very contextually uh, determined standard, right? So you have to look at the time and the place. And I agree with you that 1965, we would judge this differently than we would judge it today. Right up here, please. Yes, Caleb Dalton, uh, Center for Academic Freedom and Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, thank you, Nadine, for your book. I appreciate it. We've, the Center for Academic Freedom, one of the uh, slogans that we've been using with the students we work with is the answer is more speech. So I think right along those lines. But my, my question is for Professor Seidman and... Um, you, you mentioned the Marquette situation, and I, if I could briefly contextualize, I logged on to my Amazon Smile account a couple of weeks ago, and the organization that I donated to, which I also happen to work for, was excluded from the Amazon Smile charity donations because we were designated as a hate group. Um, and I don't support the government picking a winner and loser in that situation, but it seems like your answer in the Marquette situation, and maybe with Amazon Smile is that the government should step in and pick a winner and a loser in that situation. Or I think you mentioned by inaction, the government already has. My question is, where's the line? How does the government decide who the winner and the loser is? And why is that better than just leaving it to the marketplace? So, so that, that's a really good question. And my, my first response is the response I gave over here. I think 
the government is inevitably picking winners or losers. It has to allocate the property right to one person or the other, and whoever it allocates the property right to has the right to exclude the other person. Now, how should the government do that? Um, here, I just, John has the position somehow that um, because the government sometimes does things wrong, or even most of the time does things wrong, therefore we ought to oppose it when it does things right. And uh, I just don't understand that. So I'm, you know, I, I think most wars are stupid and foolish, but, but that's not, that doesn't mean I oppose World War II. You know, there were lots of bad wars, but there were some good wars, and there's lots of bad government action, and there were some good government action. And, and if the government tells Amazon that um, they have to not treat you like a hate group, but let you raise money just like everybody else, I would take that to be an advance of free speech, and I'd be in favor of it. So let me respond. Uh, first of all, we don't make de decisions or, or policy or constraints on policy uh, retrospectively. We make them prospectively. And we have to make decisions about what we think, uh, particularly government interventions in speech area, is going to be like and why we think people would uh, undertake it. Now, the great alternative to the restrictive uh, First Amendment, that is the, the abridgment, uh, no abridging freedom of speech, is actually been concocted by law professors, which makes it into an enabler of government power. And the idea here is that the First Amendment actually is about the purpose of the First Amendment. The purpose of the First Amendment is a rich public debate. And so government should be empowered to, ha to enable a rich public debate. And uh, you can see the connection to what Mike's been saying. Uh, but prospectively, how much reason do we think, before we know the results, that the government was going to bring that about. The government's going to be acting on the concerns of officials, on the concerns of majorities, or on the concerns of uh, highly organized groups. And none of them are going to be aiming at a rich public debate, right? It's, or it's unlikely. It's possible that there's always going to be some exceptions, some anecdotes that will support that. The First Amendment faith is that government in this area in particular is is highly unlikely to bring out a, a better result. Now, let me say something we missed also, I think, about the, the, the Southern restaurant is it hasn't been mentioned that my friend John Rausch makes much to do about in his arguments about free speech, which is free speech actually and counter speech does have a uh, alternative, which is stigmatizing and marginalizing points of view. Now, in the case of the Southern restaurant, the lady's left now, but in, in that case, I would say that you, it's somewhat complicated, but over time, what you've seen is that the position put there is now and remains, I should say, at the margins of American political debate. What Charlotte, a lot was made out of Charlottesville and the violence is there, and rightly so, but it seems to me that the conclusion is the views on that placard were marginalized primarily, though not exclusively, by freedom of speech. And that's and, the way freedom of speech can work. You know, it's a very interesting question. And I think, you know, if there were, arguably, if there were speech that was functioning, it was the functional equivalent of a whites-only sign, that would obviously uh, be illegal. 
But in this situation, I don't think anybody would deny that the restaurant owner has the right to choose to donate to the Ku Klux Klan, right? And I would rather know it than not know it precisely so that I could not go to that restaurant and organize a boycott against it. I would note, too, that Mike used the phrase, the government's um, assigning property rights. Um, as distinct from recognizing property rights. And when you that, make that distinction, the bake shop case comes into view. That's the one that's before the Supreme Court right now of the person who declines to bake a, a wedding, special wedding cake for a gay couple that comes in requesting it. Um, it seems to me that property rights will sort out the otherwise dilemma uh, that arises from uh, the baker being uh, charged with hate speech uh, or the um, person who does not respect the baker's religious um, interests being charged with hate speech. Uh, you, it seems to me, come down to the point that who owns the bakery and what rights go with that, including the right to exclude so I think, Roger, you have a consistent position, but Nadine. Well, I should you have hope a consistent so. position, but Nadine does not. Oh. Um, well, I'm, your consistent. That means I'm more nuanced. Your <laughs> but your consistent position is wrong, and Nadine's is right. Ah, I see. Well, now that we got that settled, one, we've got one last question right up here because we're running out of time. Uh, hello, thank you for having this panel. I'm Paul Spicer, and I was just wondering if during the course of writing your book, you covered the productive, anal uh, productive analyses of any of the countries that uh, have instituted hate speech laws, or if there were any comments on the productivity levels of marginalized people, marginalized people in countries of that nature or not. It, you mean productive levels in terms of contributing to economic output or? Yes, ma'am. Uh, no, I didn't. But uh, let me say this, that a number of countries that strongly enforce anti-hate speech laws do not enforce anti-discrimination laws and do not punish so-called hate crimes, which is a recognized legal concept in this country, if something that's already a crime, such as an assault or vandalism, is committed against somebody for a discriminatory reason, that can be treated as a more serious crime. Uh, so I am really concerned about making sure there is equal opportunity in important sectors, including employment, education, voting, and housing. And I'm very proud. I mean, we obviously have more to do, but I'm very proud that we are strongly enforcing those civil rights laws and strongly prosecuting uh, crimes that are committed for biased reasons. Uh, but Nadine, you just touched upon something that your book only touches upon, mm. namely hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And that raises the issue of, um, the, the hate crime is a so-called hate crime mm -hmm. because of the motive uh, of the um, criminal. Mm -hmm. And it raises the question whether enhanced punishment mm -hmm. can be imposed simply in virtue of the mindset mm -hmm. of, the, uh, of the criminal and how that differs from hate speech uh, more generally and whether it should be. 
It's a, it's a very serious debate, which was debated in the ACLU very vigorously at the time that these laws were initially advocated, which I believe was sometime in the early 1990s. And uh, it, I think there are plausible arguments on both sides, uh, uh, and the ACLU ultimately came out on one side, but with a, a strong dissent. And I think it's really a matter of uh, which, it, there are two analogies that you could use. One that Roger is invoking is you could say, well, this is analogous to a thought crime, right? Because the added punishment is specifically because of the idea or the thought, and you can't punish a thought consistent with the fundamental viewpoint neutrality principle of the First Amendment. Uh, the other plausible analogy, which I and the majority of the board was, was ultimately persuaded by, but without disputing the bona fides uh, of the other position, is no, it's the, the better analogy is uh, to an anti-discrimination statute, right? In this, uh, or sometimes we call that a civil rights statute. In this country, we take a lot of actions that are not illegal at all, such as uh, you do not have a general legal right to get a job or to not be fired, right? We have an employment at will system, and yet we have, and some of us strongly defend, I know not all of us, anti-discrimination laws that say, if for particular reasons you do not hire somebody or you fire somebody for reasons of discrimination on the basis of race, religion, gender, and so forth, we're going to take what would ordinarily be perfectly lawful and make it illegal. So I say, a fortiori, even more strongly, we take something that's already a crime and we say it's a more serious crime that does more harm to the individual and society when the victim is singled out based on discrimination. So I see, that's why I prefer the term bias crime, because it's emphasizing the anti-discrimination uh, motive there rather than hate crime, which does make it sound like you're punishing the thought. If I could say one other thing, the devil is in the details in how these particular laws are written and how they are enforced. And when the ACLU adopted that policy after a lot of debate, and dissent, uh, we said that the evidence that is used to indicate intentional discriminatory selection of that victim has to be directly tied to that crime. You can't take the fact that somebody belongs to a white supremacist group or that they've you know, read Mein Kampf or they made a racist statement. You have to show a tight and direct causal nexus uh, between the evidence of discrimination and the actual crime. Well, the devil is indeed in the details. And, and the angel. Those details. <laughs> are spelled out in exquisite detail uh, in uh, Nadine's book. We have only touched upon the many issues in this discussion that are covered in this book. As I said early on, the examples alone should uh, send chills up your spine uh, with respect to the prospect of turning to the government to proscribe hate speech because that is a prescription for ever more government, which we at the Cato Institute are, of course, instituted to oppose. And so do pick up a copy of this book. It will really reward you from, um, for reading it. And um, with that, let's have a warm round of applause for our speakers. Thank you so much, Roger. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you Great. so much. That was so much fun. Thank you, John. Thank you.